This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. If you understand what somebody's telling you in a healthcare situation, you're more likely to adhere to it, right? If you understand how your body works, what the words mean and all that, you're more likely to thrive. And when we have education systems that are not equal and don't teach these things, then people don't feel empowered when they go into these situations. And we know for a fact that that affects healthcare and affects the health of these people. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. Today you are in for such a treat. Be prepared to laugh and feel empowered with TikTok's favorite OBGYN, Dr. Heather Irabunda. You need to stop what you are doing and go follow this brilliant, compassionate, and absolutely hilarious physician. She's at Dr. Heather Irabunda, MD, where she debunks misinformation left, right, and center in the women's health space. Nothing is off limits with Dr. Heather. Dr. Heather is an OBGYN based in Queens, New York. After completing medical school and four years of residency, she served for four years as an active duty Army OBGYN. We hear more about her time in the Army on today's episode, and this woman really needs to write a book. She is so inspiring, and she is so impressive. You're going to love hearing her story. Growing up, she saw a lot of differences in her own community with what they had access to in healthcare and decided to pursue a career in medicine to help bridge the gap between healthcare providers and women, particularly women of color. She's incredibly passionate about community health, and her goal is to help women feel empowered and advocate for themselves when seeking medical care. On today's episode, we cover how racism plays a role in Black maternal health and the shocking maternal mortality rates of Black women when compared to their white counterparts. She explains the different impacts of implicit bias, tears of care, weathering, and redlining have on minority groups and the major effects of systemic and overt racism on daily chronic stress. We cover how patients can advocate for themselves and what physicians and nurses can do to make it a better experience for their patients. She busts a ton of myths you've probably seen on social media regarding the pain discussion surrounding OBGYN procedures. And we also had a ton of listener questions about women's health, so we get to those and no topic is off limits. We cover everything from tampon rescuing to IUDs to toxic shock syndrome to ovulation myths and much more. So get ready to learn a whole lot while still having fun as we welcome Dr. Heather Irabunda to the podcast. Let's dive in. Today, I am thrilled to be here with the brilliant, compassionate, and amazing Dr. Heather Irabunda, TikTok's favorite board-certifying obstetrician-gynecologist, currently practicing in New York City Health and Hospitals with thousands upon thousands of followers across all social media platforms where she shares fantastic resources on women's health, as well as her amazing podcast advisory cervix. So thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Irabunda. I'm happy to be here. 
So I know I mentioned a bit about you and your medical background and training in the intro, but you have such an inspiring story for women in medicine, especially young black women. So I was wondering if you could start off with telling us about you in your own words and how you decided to go into medicine and the military and choose OBGYN. <laughs> I know I've done a lot of random things as I like to tell people. And it's kind of funny because I'm like, oh yeah, like that all of that happened. But I'm a girl who grew up in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx, born and raised. And it's funny because like, I think when everybody asks you what you want to be when you're growing up, people are like lawyer, doctor, you know, nurse, whatever. And so I guess I was one of those people too. So I always knew I was interested in like health and making sure that like the people around me were healthy. And like, especially with my community, I saw a lot of differences in kind of, what people had access to in terms of healthcare. Because I had friends who their families didn't have insurance. They weren't able to really go to the doctor like that. At one point, like my family was going to like free clinics and stuff like that. Um, and then when my parents got like better jobs and we had really good insurance. And so then we were like dealing with that stuff. But I saw that there was this like wide array of experiences with healthcare, even as a child and wanted to do something about it. So I knew what doctors did, but I didn't know like that there were people who were like epidemiologists or people who made health policy or ran hospitals and things like that, because those aren't the sexy jobs that people talk to children about, right? Like they don't tell kids like, oh yeah, you know, like the person who makes the recommendations for vaccines, right? Like for when kids should get their vaccines. Like nobody talks about that stuff. They talk about like Jonas Salk, who was the guy who made the vaccine, you know? So I remember being like, you know, I don't know if I want to like touch sick people. And it's funny now because I'm an OBGYN and I'm like all up in there. But <laughs> I remember like going to college and being like, I don't know if I want to do that. So I had a variety of different experiences after college. I actually did public health research. And that's really what made me want to go into clinical medicine. So like I was working on a study at Columbia University and it was with zero discordant HIV positive African-American couples, heterosexual couples. So one partner was HIV positive, the other one was negative, And they had stated that they had been using unsafe sex practices. And we were using behavioral interventions to get them to use safer sex practices. And I was a person who was in charge of recruitment and retention of these individuals. So I interviewed a lot of people, like trying to, you know, get people in the study. Also had to recruit in a lot of different places. I became like an HIV testing counselor during the time. It was really an interesting experience over those few years. And what I really saw and what drew me to women's health was the fact that I met a whole bunch of women when I was doing this work who didn't know much about their bodies, didn't know how you know, different diseases got transferred back and forth, didn't know much about their reproductive anatomy. And so I got really interested in that. And then through the whole time, I got really interested in like disease processes. And so that's how I ended up going to med school. And then in med school, I joined the military. So I was in the army. And so I did my residency in the army. 
Thank you for your service. Thank you. Um, And what's interesting about it too, is my younger brother was in the army already at the time. So he, yeah, so he was an infantry officer. So he was like one of those guys who was like going out there, you know, getting deployed. He'd been to Afghanistan a few times and stuff like that. And I don't know, I always, my brothers are younger than me. And like, I always felt like I was just as much of a badass. So I was like, (laughs) I was like, I can join too, but I'll be a doctor in there. And so that's basically, (laughs) (laughs) you are a badass (laughs) and so it was just really interesting actually being a an OBGYN in the army because even to this day like this very week I had somebody at my job who like um I was in the operating room and one of the nurses he asked me he was like you were an OBGYN in the army like who are you taking care of and I'm like (laughs) people forget that there are people with vaginas and uteruses in the army who are like, I, for one, was in the army. I need a doctor to be able to take care of these parts. Additionally, we took care of the dependents as well. So we did have a very, very bustling, busy service, but it was always so interesting to talk to some of these like generals of these bases who were like, why do we need a gynecologist? Why do we need gynecologists on on base? And you're like, because there's because they're female soldiers like we need people to like take care of these these soldiers Unbelievable. Unbelievable. totally forget about it sometimes so Absolutely. it's really interesting to like even navigate some of the nuance with that like being in the military being a woman and then being someone who provides health care for you know women in the military it was very interesting and then after I left because I did my residency did some time um for payback for um for them paying for my med school and then I was upstate at Fort Drum and then I came back down to New York City and since then I've been really kind of like creating this like you know path for myself really I'm working back in the Bronx so that I'm working back in the area of of the city that I grew up in and it's really cool because it's kind of like a full circle moment and I feel like I now have all of the all of these experiences all of these different things that I've taken from wherever I've been to bring back so it's really cool Heather, I hope you write a book because I could listen to your story. <laughs> Not only could I listen to your story and read your story, but I could listen to you if you did an audiobook too, because you just, the yeah. way you, you talk and explain things, just your entire story, your journey, everything is so inspiring for all women. And I just think that in science and, and especially being in like numerous male dominated fields and then being in the military, which is male, you know, male dominant, and then going into medicine and becoming a surgeon and being a black woman who is incredibly brilliant and empowered is just so inspiring. So I hope you write a book. Wow. I'm like, I always feel like so awkward when people are like, oh my God, you've done all these things because like, I always tell people when you're doing things, like your head is just like in in there and then opportunities and the one big thing I always tell people opportunities will always like present themselves to you and like go for it like I just went for random things yeah exactly just go for it because like I feel like sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and we're just like oh you know I don't know like and sometimes you just need to go for it it was just like all right I'll join the army let's see what happens oh really recently one woman had asked me on social media she's like I'm 
34 and I really want to go to medical school and I feel like it's too late X, Y, or Z. And I was like, well, your choice is to either, you know, not go to medical school and be 44 in 10 years and not be a doctor and be something else. Or in 10 years, the 10 years are going to pass anyway, or just go through medical school, residency, fellowship, whatever. And then when you're 44, you'll be a physician. So, you know, or well, actually 38, you graduate med school, but you know what I mean? And so it's Mm -hmm. like the time's going to pass anyway. So it's just making the most of it. And I truly agree with that because as someone who did not go straight through to med school and what was interesting about my med school experience was that I also met quite a few other people who also did other things. Like one of my really good friends from um, med school, Mike, how you doing? (laughs) Um, He has an amazing story. He was in the Navy for a long time. He used to do like translating and stuff. Like he's like brilliant. Like he's now an an OB anesthesiologist in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And like he was, you know, he was older than me, but like it was interesting because I remember he would be like, oh, is it like weird that I'm older? I'm like, no, you have so much cool experience to bring to what's going on here. Totally. So much value. So much value. And you don't even realize it because you really know sometimes that this is what you want to do. You tried other things and, you know, maybe you realize that was for a time. And if you go into careers later in life or what's considered later in life, because 34 is really not old at at all. all. Like now everyone's living to like, we just had a patient get a TAVR at a hundred. I mean, please, we're putting TAVR valves in a hundred year olds now. Like (laughs) life expectancy is long. Go to med school at 34. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, you have a lot of life to live. It's like, it's so funny because like I was just telling you, I'm 39, I'm going to turn 40 this year. And I'm just like, I don't feel like what 40 looked like in like, you know what I mean? Well, like, you, you look I, 20, but well, you know, so, you. And your energy is definitely <laughs> 20 level. So you're, you're killing it. Right. And I was just like, through too many times, especially I feel like for those of us are, who identify as women, that we feel like we have a shelf life or a time that we're supposed to do things. And it's like, listen, I've enjoyed my 30s. 40 feels like the new 30 to me. Like I'm not like, I'm not ready to slow down or like be lame. Totally. Totally. I don't, I I don't know. I feel like age is just, is, is just a number. They always say that. And I think it's it's actually true. No, it is. I just am so appreciative for you to be on the podcast because the intersection of cardiovascular disease and pregnancy is actually where our roles as physicians overlap. And I love the team approach I feel when working with OBGYN colleagues to help mothers. And across nearly every aspect of healthcare, you think about it, in the last 30 years, we've made these incredible strides with new technologies and advanced medical therapies and early detection for various diseases. Yet it's absolutely unacceptable that so many people continue to still die in pregnancy and childbirth with rising rates of mortality during pregnancy, childbirth, even up to a year postpartum in the U.S. with most deaths largely preventable and one out of three due to cardiovascular disease. With Black women who are two to three times more likely to die during pregnancy and childbirth as compared to white women and 
The data shows this is despite research studies giving consideration for socioeconomic status and other traditional risk factors, such as health behaviors and chronic comorbidities. So one important topic in medicine, cardiology, women's health that I know you've emphasized is how racism plays a role in Black maternal health. And so can you elaborate on this and what can both patients do to advocate for themselves and what can providers do to change this? Yeah, so it's wild to know that overall for all women, all pregnant people in the U.S. that for the last 30 years, steadily the inter- the maternal mortality rate has been increasing for everyone. Unreal. It's been worse in communities of color, especially Black women, but it's for everyone. And Unreal. it's so astounding because so many of us in OBGYN are like, what is going on here? Like, what happened? And just going through all of all, you know, all of the pieces to the puzzle. And then especially when we talk about Black women. So you mentioned the statistic where it's about three times more likely a Black woman is about three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related death than a white woman. But like in some areas, it's even more astounding, like oh. here in New York City, where we have so much like relative health care, right? How many medical schools, medical institutions, hospitals are in New York City? Tons tons, more than a dozen. There's 11 um, public hospitals in New York City. And the maternal mortality rate for Black women is eight to 12 times worse, like higher My than jaw their white counterpart. My yeah, jaw I remember dropped. when I got back, because I remember hearing the statistics nationwide, and I was like, this is really terrible. This is really terrible. awful what's going on. And then when I came back to New York City and I wasn't expecting it because I'm like, there's so many hospitals, like we have so many specialists here. It should be better. It's in fact worse than the national average. And you're like, how does this happen? And so it's a variety of different reasons. And so racism plays a big role, but like both directly and indirectly. So, okay, you have your implicit bias where people have beliefs. So as in people like, medical providers, nurses, people involved with delivery of care have biases towards certain certain people that they take care of. And so some people may feel like Black women don't experience pain or Black people don't experience pain as much as white people or other people. There was a study that was released in 2016. So that's like not that long ago, right? Yeah. Listening to this podcast, remember 2016, probably pretty well. Um, (laughs) There was a study that came out that showed that med students and residents, many of them believed that Black people had thicker skin and and felt less pain. That's not that long ago. We're not talking about the 50s. We're not talking about the 1800s. We're talking about 2016 that that study came out. Yeah, that's through the American Medical Association. If you go on their website, they have a nice little link to that. So that's terrible. Then, you know, there's other things that I've seen where it's like people may feel that the priorities are different for different people, like people from different backgrounds, like, oh, they don't value their health. They value other things more. And, you know, and stating that is also problematic because then you may bring that energy to an interaction and then may not understand that, hey, no, she does care. And there are things that are happening and, you know, you can explain what's going on to this patient and help them out. So there's, you know, the impl- implicit bias piece. 
Then, oh yeah. And then also tiers of care, right? Because, and this is some of the systemic stuff, right? So employment is directly linked to insurance coverage, right? If you're employed and depending on your level of employment and what kind of jobs you have, will determine what kind of health insurance you have. If you're not employed, you may have Medicaid or you may not be insured. And so with higher unemployment rates or on what we consider under, underemployed or low, low wage jobs, you have worse health insurance and less access and then more issues that come with that, right? Ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you have things like, even access to healthy behaviors, right? So access to food <laughs> is a problem. And it's so interesting. I remember growing up in the Bronx and being like, at some point, like, I don't know how, like, I think my, my parents were working downtown, like in Manhattan at some point. And so they would pick up like fruits and veggies, like on their way home. Right. And then I remember at one point they weren't, and they were just getting things locally. And I remember at one point I stopped like I used to love oranges and then I started hating them because the oranges you would get in my neighborhood would go, they were always like really bad. Like they were flavorless. Like they were always like green when you got them. And then you would wait and wait and wait for them to be ripe. And they still tasted awful. Or if you got them, they spoiled like the next day and they were also very expensive. And so that's the case in a lot of, you know, places where people of color live. Right in large volumes. There's not a lot of places to have access to healthy, fresh foods that, you know, will promote healthy behaviors. And so food deserts are an issue. Redlining is an issue also where it's like, where do you have access to, you know, to your hospital? Is your hospital close to you? Also, education, right? Because I always say, if you are able to understand things, right, there's regular literacy and then there's health literacy as well. If you understand what somebody's telling you in a healthcare situation, you're more likely to adhere to it, right? If you understand how your body works, what the words mean and all that, you're more likely to thrive. And when we have education systems that are not equal and don't teach these things, then people don't feel empowered when they go into these situations. And we know for a fact that that affects healthcare and affects the health of these people. And so these are just some of the factors. There's also environmental toxins. So like another thing, I grew up also in the Bronx where we have the Cross Bronx Expressway that goes right through the middle of the borough. And it's the only um, path from the northern, like, you know, kind of northeast to Jersey and elsewhere that tractor trailers can go through. And so, and it was designed to go through these neighborhoods. And the Bronx has some of the highest rates of asthma in the world. We're not even talking about the United States in the entire world. And a lot of it we think is due to the cross Bronx expressway. So you also have communities of color that are placed in less desirable areas. And then there's even, there may be a power plant nearby. There may be, you know, a big thoroughfare that's right in between like, you know, where people live and these all affect people's health. So it's a big deal. And just even the daily chronic stress of experiencing, you know, systemic and like overt racism, we know also plays a role in how people are, you know, how their health is. So something called weathering. Have you heard about that, Danielle? Yeah. Yeah. But feel free to elaborate for everyone. Yeah. 
Yeah, so weathering is when we believe that our actual DNA has been altered due to the chronic stress of racism or whatever is going on. And we see evidence of that. And so it seems like even from generations past that, you know, we're enslaved and all, and went through Jim Crow and all of that. And then even the things that we're dealing now not only affect us, but generations to come. And so it's, it's a lot. (laughs) And I always tell people like when they hear about all of the different ways that health is affected by racism and by discrimination and all of that, it can feel overwhelming, but there are also ways that we can work for work towards fixing that. And if we all just really go at it together, we can do this. We can fix this. I mean, I just am so impressed by just the breadth of how you were able to just so eloquently describe such a complex, complex, multifactorial uh, topic that, you know, is really there's so much that goes into social determinants of health. And I just really appreciate so much for you being able to elaborate and explain that, because the thing is, is that OBGYNs to me are some of the most important healthcare providers we have, because for women, up until they're in their 30s, 40s, maybe even later, you are a lot of women's primary care doctor. Oh, yeah. You are the front of the front line. They are not seeing a PCP. They're not seeing, nope. they are just <laughs> going to you. And so, how can physicians, nurses who are listening that are hearing this, what can they do to make it a better experience for patients that are of a different race, ethnicity, sexual orientation? everything. Yeah. So I always just say like when, and, and it sounds like so cliche, but I'm always like, anytime I go into my office, right. And even if I'm having like a bad day or I'm like, just particularly moody for whatever reason it is, it's like, I also like, I take a deep breath and I think, and I'm like, if this was my mom, if this was my sister, like, and they were going somewhere else, would I want them to be treated? Like, would I want to be snooty or would I would, or like, not like, like being like mean, or would I want them to have a good experience? And I try to give that to other people. But another thing too, is like, you know, just ask people how they want to be referred to. Cause that's another, uh, like a huge thing. It's like, listen, we're not all the same. We're not all the same. And we like, in terms of like, I don't look like you, like, you know, we've all had different experiences and it's okay, but we should honor that. And it's such an easy thing to do to make someone feel comfortable and also to ask someone how to pronounce their name. I think too, there's just like a few things you can do. Ask someone how they want to, like you mentioned, how exactly what their pronouns are or how they, um, you pronounce certain things to make someone feel comfortable immediately so they don't feel like there's such a boundary between you and them. Exactly. And we should also make sure that when we're asking patients if they have any questions, this is a a big one for me, that you don't do it in like this whole like really rushed way. Because I feel like people will rapid fire tell somebody about their you know, disease, their, you know, the possible treatment options and whatever, and like plan for treatment and then ask them, oh yeah, do you have any questions? But mean it. Yeah, but mean it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, really make sure you're doing that. Like, 
don't assume that people have the same resources as you or like shame somebody. Cause even in ways that we are like, Oh really? Or like, are you sure you can't? Cause another thing that I talk to people about too, is like, I had a very long conversation with one of my friends who's also an OBGYN here in New York city about talking about physical activity. Right. And people say, Oh yeah, you don't need any fancy stuff. You can go for a walk. But like, what neighborhood do you live in? Do you feel safe? Is it like, did somebody get stabbed on the corner last week? And like, you feel scared to go out in broad daylight. And now you feel scared to walk around the block like you normally did, or, you know, a few times or whatever. So it's like, like we sometimes come off really judgy and like, you just don't know what people are going through. And I think we always assume the worst out of people because it'll be like, oh, they're trying to game me. They're trying to game the system. They're trying to do whatever. And like, even something that you may think may be gaming the system, like if you probe a little bit more, you may realize, hey, this person like doesn't have a job, is food insecure, and maybe like is dragging their feet from leaving or doing something because they're hungry. Or, or maybe that patient who's like quick to like, like, you know, I don't want to be admitted to the hospital. I need to go. I don't get, I don't care. Maybe they have kids at home and they don't have childcare or their childcare is about to leave. And, and if they leave their kids at home, you know, like child protective services will come and get them. Like, I feel like so often we take this role of like, you have to be doing the worst thing. Like you don't value this, you don't, whatever. And we don't even take them a moment to hear them out. I couldn't agree more. I just like every other physician who's white, we all have to keep looking internally and working on our own bias. But let me tell you, I did all my medical training in Philadelphia at Drexel Temple. I was in Philly for forever. And mm-hmm. I, my experience working in inner city population, like made me realize, um, and of obviously to no extent, uh, not to the same extent to people who've lived it, but it made me realize that, you know, people would assign a patient with like, oh, they left AMA and yeah. and brush it off. And I'm, I'm saying to them, they left AMA because they, like you mentioned, they have a child that's at home that's alone or a patient who doesn't, a no-show for an appointment. Guess what? Sometimes that no-show for an, for an appointment is because they can't afford the bus to get to the appointment today. Yes. And, you know, like the the idea about like at Temple, you know, it's one of the most um, around one of the, you know, most highly crime ridden areas in North Philadelphia. And for me to tell my patients to go just take a walk. I mean, that some of my patients would be like, I can't just go take a walk like around yeah. the neighborhood and go for a run. I don't live next to Fairmount Park, you know, so it's yeah. it's just recognizing that different like challenges are there like you named so many that are I could never even have thought of all of them but there's so many we have to be aware we have to continue to learn from physicians like you who have not only lived but worked with patients of just such a diverse background and just to continue to realize and recognize that there's so many components that go into it and right and recognize the bias. I mean, there are so many factors I can think of with patients of mine that someone would say, oh, non-compliant or whatever. They can't yes. afford their medication this month. It's not non-compliant. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's so interesting you say that because it's just like even some of the things with pregnant patients, right? Like where it's like last year, at the beginning of last year, one of the Medicaid um, payers in New York State stopped paying for prenatal vitamins. They just stopped. 
That's insane. Like, that's absurd. And so that's, you know, I'm an OBGYN, so I write for prenatals all the time. And then all of a sudden I started getting like a slew of messages in Epic, you know, <laughs> Epic. <laughs> Epic. <laughs> <laughs> but I got like a, a slew of messages from patients saying like, hey, like I can't afford this. Like oh I can't gosh. afford this. And trying to figure out how to even get my patients prenatal vitamins or, um, blood pressure cuffs, right? Because we know that hypertension, hypertensive disorders and pregnancy are a huge deal and can be killers. And so early detection of that is necessary. So a lot of my patients, I recommend, you know, taking their blood pressure at home, learning how to do that. We teach them how to do that. But sometimes insurance carriers are like, I'm not paying for that. I'm not paying for a blood pressure cuff. And you're just like, you know, we're trying to put healthy behaviors into the hands of our patients. And sometimes we're not getting the help that we need to do that. And then, so, you know, we have workarounds. It's like, okay, someone donated a whole bunch of blood pressure cuffs, right? So we try to give people blood pressure cuffs as we have them, but then, you know, inevitably run out. And then it's like trying to figure that out, you know, like, it's just, you name it, it's a problem. There shouldn't be this many boundaries, right? Right, right. So someone listening who feels they are not heard by their OBGYN, they feel that they're not listened to, they feel uncomfortable. What can you tell patients listening that they can do to advocate for themselves? Because, um, and I would love for you also to describe what you were discussing about pain, because that is a huge issue that I am not um, knowledgeable of. I would love for you to educate us about that too. But what can patients do to advocate and kind of get us up to speed with what's been going on in pain in this space too? Yeah, so in terms of, advocating for yourself in a GYN space, I always say first be upfront, like, you know, because I think that there's so much fear of what we would be perceived as if we said anything. And it's a real, it's a real fear because I understand that I've actually been there myself where I've been in medical situations before I was in, you know, a physician where I was like, I don't feel like I can say anything because if I do, I'm going to be treated worse. But at the same time, if you're not really feeling like you're getting what you need and you feel like you're being treated pretty badly as is, you might as well speak up because yep. it's not, you know, it's probably not going to get any worse. So, <laughs> <good point>. like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you need to speak up first off. If it's met with resistance, I always say, if you have the option to change your provider, you should, but not everybody's in that situation for a variety of different reasons. So that's not always the answer for everyone. So another way that you can advocate for yourself is find out who the patient care rep is or patient relations and they can be used as a tool to help mediate a conversation if necessary with that provider. So you can say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. I want to talk to a patient rep and may, or even the head nurse or, you know, the supervisor, anybody within that clinical space. And they can even help um, moderate the interaction or an interaction because they think that sometimes people need to be stopped in their tracks because, as much as there are a lot of really crappy people who are doing crappy stuff around, there's actually some people who may not even be aware of how they're coming off or what they're doing and maybe just need to be redirected. And so 
if you never say anything, then that person doesn't know that they've offended you or they haven't provided you everything. Because I've definitely been in meetings with some of my colleagues, you know, over the years in different spaces where they'll be talking about something and I'm like, that's problematic. And they're like, huh? And I'm like, let me tell you why. And then, you know, and it's like, I'm not going to like, usually it's not like me just screaming at everybody or whatever, but I'm like really talking to them and wanting them to understand. And then they're like, I never even really thought about that. I want to change what I'm doing, you know, because they didn't even see the problem with what they were saying or doing or whatever. And I think that as much as it really shouldn't be our responsibility and it sucks to have that extra weight on our shoulders, like that's part of the advocacy work you need to do for yourself. And that can be the difference between having a really crappy, you know, pregnancy experience because you were upset at your first OB appointment and never addressed it in every single appointment. You're like, this is the worst or you can address it and maybe you you know you end up being like you know what this wasn't so bad because I told my OB this is how I feel and I'm not you know and and these are the things that I find offensive or these are my concerns because that's another thing that I always tell people to advocate for is that even if you're not having a bad experience so many Black women are scared coming into an OBGYN's office or into a hospital because they hear these startling rates of maternal mortality. And I mean, I've had women break down crying at their first prenatal appointment because they're scared they're going to die in labor That's and awesome. that they're going to be treated terribly. And it's like so painful, but they're telling me it because they feel that they can trust me and they can talk to me. And it's like, and I feel like these same women, if they're in other, in other areas, talking to docs of different backgrounds should be able to tell that to their providers as well. Yeah, absolutely. That is such fantastic advice because there is only so much we can control externally with regards to, you know, systematic, there's many changes that have to happen, but this at least gives some really great useful tips for someone listening who's going through this right now. Right. That are actionable. So I would love for you to explain what's happening with the pain discussion, because this is fascinating to me. Fascinating. Yes. So starting a few months ago, people, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's something that a lot of us OBGYNs on social media have been talking about for a while. And so a few months ago, some people on TikTok started posting about their IUD placement experiences, right? And they saw some of the tools that we use to place at IUDs and it freaked them out. One of which is the tenaculum, which I'm sure you know what that yep. looks like. Mm-hmm. It looks really scary. I'm not going to gaslight anyone. It still on that. scares me. I- it scares me. <laughs> I'm like, I take it out. And I'm like, Ugh. like I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand. I remember the first time I saw one of those in med school, I was like, that's going where? I was like, wow, that's hardcore. And so, yeah. So a lot of people have seen these things and they were like, I didn't know that when I consented for an IUD placement that you were going to put that like clamp on me. Like I didn't consent to that, you know, and also like, why are these procedures so painful. It's the patriarchy. It's terrible. And I mean, there, there is definitely some truth to that, (laughs) but 
there's also like, you know, and then people are like, why aren't we put under like general anesthesia for like, you know, all these things, like kind of like, why can, why at the dentist's office, like you get laughing gas and you don't get that necessarily at an OB's office. So there was like a lot of discussion about all of this stuff. And I know a few OBs tried to talk about it and got like, killed for it because basically people were saying that they were not listening to people talk about their pain and they were they were they had an issue with it so a lot of us stayed out of the fray to let everybody get it off their chest because you know I think it's really actually meaningful and important for people to talk about things that bother them but then what has since happened is in the last few kind of month or two or so there have been Tons of non-OBGYN docs who are male who've hopped onto this without doing any sort of background research, no No lit searches, no, they didn't even talk to an OB, you know, whatever. And we're like, yeah, like, why are, why don't we do any like sedation? Why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And why are people, and it was like crazy because it's like, you are in medicine, right? So I would assume, because if I post anything out of my scope of practice, which I tend not to, I tend not to, stay in my lane. Same. But if per chance, I usually not only run it by, but usually collaborate with somebody in that field to make sure that what I'm presenting is accurate. Totally. The audacity. Yes. The audacity. (laughs) Exactly. And the thing that was crazy about it too, is that these people were making claims that it had not been pain control for GYN procedures had not been studied, which is actually one of the few most studied things in our field. Like a quick PubMed search would come up with hundreds of studies about this. So, and mind you, there could be better ones and there could be more. So I'm not going to say that. And research in OBGYN is drastically underfunded. And that's actually been reported on recently. Like, it's disgusting how, like, when you look at research dollars, like ours are like, boop, compared to everyone else's. So there is room for improvement, but there are a whole bunch of men who have now garnered a lot of followers on TikTok and Instagram, like at, you know, basically at, at the mercy of female OBGYNs, because a lot of the comments and things under this talk about female OBGYNs being heartless. So they're advocating for just like general anesthesia for an IUD? Yeah, general anesthesia, or they're talking about like local anesthetic, like it's easy and it'll just take the pain away when there are many, many, many studies that show a lot of mixed data and most of it actually does not advocate for it because most in these studies, most of these patients have said that the anesthetic hurt worse than the IUD. So, you know, there's like a lot of, you know, or a shot at Toradol and also again, there are studies that show that people thought the shot of Tordal was like the most horrible thing they've ever gotten, worse than the IUD. Like there's so many things. Right. I, I just cannot imagine as a physician who, you know, in my internal medicine residency, we had to do a certain number of um, pap smears. We had to do a certain number of women's health, et cetera. I cannot imagine even dipping my toe and weighing my opinion in into an OBGYN's like entire scope of practice and pretending on social media, like you could possibly add to the conversation against expert scientific consensus. It's so mind boggling to me. And doesn't it frustrate you? Cause I know you speak 
a lot on social media wonderfully about misinformation. And isn't it the most frustrating when it's other doctors spreading it? Yeah. And that's the issue that I have because my, the thing that I want to like stress and that most of us want to stress like OBGYNs who are out here doing social media stuff is that I'm not invalidating anyone's experience with getting a GYN procedure. I had an IUD place. It was pretty bad for me. (laughs) So I will not sugarcoat after mine. And that's what out. I'm saying. Like, <laughs> it's like, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, literally, it's I not still great. love it though. I still love an IUD. Just yeah. And I loved it. Yeah, exactly. I loved it, but it is what it is. It wasn't a good experience. I'll say it wasn't. And you know what? Could we do better? Could we figure this out? I hope so. People are putting time and effort into trying to figure out how to make this better. But at the same time, there is research to show that some of the more common things that we use to assist people for in-office procedures don't work as well in a GYN like framework. Yeah. And I'm sorry, like, and, and we need to, we need to figure this out. But at the same time to say that no one cares enough to figure it out is not really telling the whole story. And then also when people are offering things up, which have, has been studied before. So frustrating. You know, and has been disproven. It's like, you're just adding fuel to the fire. And as I keep telling people, followers equals money, right? So these people who are throwing gas on the flame here, they're doing it because they're getting more followers. And by getting more followers, they're getting more sponsorship opportunities or whatever opportunities. And that equates to money and wealth. And so they, it's it's just like people who are selling whack-ass supplements. (laughs) It's, it's similar stuff. And, and that's why it's like, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that if you had a bad experience with a GYN procedure, that it's in your head, it's not in your head. There's definitely, you know, it's, there's definitely a lot of problematic people doing GYN procedures too, who don't listen to their patients. And that's something that we, those of us who care are fighting against, Right. but like, it's also not fair to be like, the whole, every OBGYN doesn't care about this. Heather, this is so in line with like, I, with every single podcast episode I've recorded, this is just such a consistent theme that we've seen when we discuss social media and medicine. And it is the same thing. What happens is is these people, whether they're selling their supplements, their detoxes, their cleanses or whatever, the patients are the ones that suffer. They're either selling false hope. They're selling misinformation to gain followers, to make money, Etc. And the, the rest of us who are following guideline directed recommendations and care based on a synthesis of a tremendous amount of research and evidence are the ones that are told, you know, no, 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 this doctor has the answer to my questions. And I agree with you. Never, ever, ever do I want to say to a patient who's experiencing pain or feels not heard that that we don't believe them or that we're that their experience isn't valid. Like you said, the pain is real. The symptoms are real. But if someone like, for example, in functional medicine, where they make up a diagnosis like adrenal fatigue, so then they can sell you supplements for it, even though we may not be able to figure out exactly why you're having X, Y, or Z symptom a hundred percent of the time, a lot of times we can, but not a hundred percent of the time, the alternative of making up a diagnosis is not the answer either. And And, and so, so people should listening should feel validated. We do. I mean, I 
think that, especially when it comes to things like pain, it is incredibly complex, it's subjective, and and your physician should be working with you and um, should, you should feel comfortable telling your physician exactly how you feel. But these predatory physicians online or healthcare providers online, they just, it's beyond frustrating and it spans the whole space. But it does. Act, but actually I asked my listeners, because you are like everyone, if you're not already following Dr. Heather, you need to actually give everyone your Instagram and your TikTok handle real quick. Yeah, it's Dr. Heather Irovunda, MD on both. Find me. I'm usually struggled twerking or something or well, making out the, with a speculum. She's got the <laughs> best social media ever. And so when I asked my followers, because I have some questions for you, because when I asked my followers, having Dr. Heather on, the one thing that kept getting repeated to me over and over again was how much everyone appreciates that you make. You're like everyone's favorite, like comfortable, cool millennial OBGYN, where like you make everyone feel not embarrassed or awkward to ask questions, which I think is so important because GYN health, this is such an intimate relationship you have with your GYN. So I put a question box up and I said, ask away. You'll be anonymous, just like Dumois for anyone that follows that Instagram. <laughs> anon, please. Okay. So we did an anon, please version for Dr. Heather. And so Girl, I got the questions for you. It's my favorite. Like, I actually truly enjoy answering these questions. Because no judgment. You don't judge. You're so, you're so compassionate. And it's like, do you understand how many like random questions I've had through my life about just everything? Like, guys, I was in a struggle, man. I was in a struggle. <laughs> like seen it. I've I've seen it. I've experienced it. My friends yeah. have experienced it. Between all no of like, I'm just like, you just gotta, you know, it's life. All right. First one. All right. The listener says she had her period, mm-hmm. went to the bathroom and could not find her tampon anywhere. She thought it was stuck and out of reach. What tips do you have for getting it out at home versus going to the hospital? <laughs> This is a great one. I actually did a TikTok about this. I saw that. Yeah, to the tune of Cardi B's up because that's the first thing (laughs) that I actually thought about when I heard, like, that's how you know you're a nerdy OBGYN, that you hear Cardi B's up and you're like, tampon stuck up there. (laughs) That's literally what I thought. So here's some things. First off, take a deep breath. You're not going to die. And your vagina at the top isn't just like this gateway into like your abdomen. Your lungs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like there's a hard stop and that's called your cervix. And <laughs> so like, it's not, it, it's not going past that. Okay. So take a deep breath. It's not lost forever. Okay. It's not, yeah, it's not floating around your lungs That's important. Or that's important. Cause trust me, I've, experience the whole like oh my god I think my tampon's lost and then I I have as somebody who was like already a physician (laughs) had to take a deep breath and be like Heather there's a cervix there it can't be higher than that it's not not in your pancreas exactly so another thing you want to do is relax and then another thing you want to do is take a deep breath and like like you're having a bowel movement you want to like bear down into your vagina or into your butt, right? And that actually helps push down the tampon from the reaches, the high reaches it is to a more, um, like a lower place that you can just pull it out, right? And then you gotta stick your finger up there, you know, and get it out. And you can do that a few times, but remember, 
don't do it too much or like for too long or you actually will pass out because you're vas- you're vas- you're vas- you're vas- you're vas- you're because vas- <laughs> I've almost did that too girl like if I tell you the stories of what's happened in my life this is why your TikTok's favorite I'm shining like a, a menstrual cup for the first time and I literally was like oh my god I can't go into my own hospital and like have somebody reach out <laughs> for me. So I was like, I got to try this. I was like, I know what to do. And yeah, I almost vasovagled like in my oh, own no. bathroom because I was doing it oh, for no. And I was like, oh my God, I feel really lightheaded. So take a deep breath. You don't have to get it out right, right then, but you know, keep trying and it will come down. It will come out. Also, what you can do is if you have a really good friend or partner. A bestie. A bestie. <laughs> They can go reach up in there and get it for you. I mean, it's, it's life. That's it's, a true friend. That's a true friend. Like, I'll, I'll be honest. I've done that for one of my friends once. So, you know, I would do it true for a friend. I, yeah, I've done, I'm like, I'm, I'm a gynecologist now. So I've done a lot of things for my friends, including <laughs> deliver their babies, which oh. is, is cool. But yeah, we've, we've been a lot of places together. <laughs> we've done been a lot of things it. together, but yeah. So like, I would say Valsalva, you want to, you know, push down. You can try coughing a few times, but really you want to have that sustained push um, and then reach your hand up in there and pull her out. All right. Another listener wants to know, they gave a similar scenario and said that it happened with a condom. Again, I I would say do the same thing and like, you know, have your partner help you. Like this happens so often guys, like this really happens a lot. And honestly, if you can't get it out, you're freaked out, you're weirded out. You don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Come on in. We've done it before. Don't wait though, till it's like a few days later, because it may smell not that great. And you may need some antibiotics. Well, that's actually, that leads to the next question. So the next listener said she went to the bathroom. She put a new tampon in. And Mm. when she went to take her old tampon out, she realized she had two in there. Mm -hmm. One of her tampons was probably in there for greater than a day. She wants to know if you can explain when it becomes dangerous to leave your tampon in too long. And when can you get like, are you at risk for TSS? Okay. So for TSS, which is toxic shock syndrome, you're at risk when you use like, like really, really absorbent tampons and if you leave them in for an ex- a really long period of time. Typically, it doesn't happen as much anymore because there were certain tampons out on the market way back in the day that were like extra, extra, super, super absorbent. And so they put you at higher risk for TSS. And so that's why we saw more cases of that before, but they have actually changed how tampons are made. So most modern tampons will it's highly unlikely that you'll get tss from the tampons usually but yeah keeping them in for a day or two could potentially put you at risk still unlikely though but can and you'll start getting symptoms of kind of like fevers like like sepsis basically but now you see it a lot more i've seen any case that i've seen has actually been from pharyngitis strep a pharyngitis Wow. Yeah, because we usually get called in if it's a woman because they're like, can you do a pel- <laughs> to do a pelvic exam, which I'm like, guys, because <laughs> they're like, can you check if there's a tampon stuck there? Because usually the patient's really sick. And wow. so but but like 
their history reports, like somebody who was around them was like, oh, they have like a really bad cold, like, you know, their throat was really like sore, whatever. So most times we're seeing it in strep A pharyngitis that can cause TSS. It's actually more common that that would cause it than a tampon or menstrual cup or anything. So, but yeah, like they call us in to check the vagina to make sure there's no tampon in there. Yeah. (laughs) So fun fact, but yeah, so most times if you leave a tampon in too long, the most that will usually happen is that you will get like bacterial vaginosis or yeast infection just because that tampon that has all that blood and stuff like that is just a perfect breeding ground for microorganisms. And so it may and throwing off your pH. And so you might see, usually it's like BV. And so you might see a smell and may need antibiotics. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So next listener, I've always heard you can't get pregnant when you're on your period. Is this true? It is not true. It's not, it's so not this true. Is fiction. It is fiction. So day one of your menstrual cycle is your first day of bleeding, right? And one thing that I learned in OBGYN residency <laughs> was like the last part of your menstrual cycle, the luteal phase is the part that stays the same. Like if you've ovulated, so that's always like 14 days. That first part, like, you know, how everybody talks about a 28 day cycle or yep. there's ranges yep. from 21 to like 35. Yep. That's in the range of normal is because that first part of the menstrual cycle, the follicular phase can be varied in different people. Right. right. And so let's give an example of how you could potentially get pregnant if you're still bleeding on yes. your period. So let's say you bleed for seven days on your period, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a 21-day cycle. So meaning that this is like math. (laughs) Yeah, this is so fun. So you bleed for the first seven days, right? And I told you that luteal phase after that little eggy pops out is 14 days, right? So that means you bleed for seven days of your cycle, right? You ovulate on the seventh day. You're still bleeding that day. So if you had sex that day, you could potentially get pregnant. But add this to it. Sperm can live in the reproductive tract of a female for 72 hours. So that's right, ladies. You heard it here. (laughs) Exactly. So if you theoretically had sex on like day five of your menstrual cycle of your period, day five of your period and you have a seven day cycle you can still get pregnant and that wasn't even like trailing bleeding that was like still you still in the thick of things so yeah it happens and it can happen the math checks out the math checks out the math checks out and that's with regular (laughs) cycles what if you're like kind of irregular oh my goodness then all bets are off all bets are off. Exactly. Because you don't really know. I can't really tell you with certainty when you're ovulating, if unless I'm like doing sonos and oh. hormone levels every day, <laughs> then yeah, I'll be like, right. oh no, don't do it right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, absolutely. Most times we're not. So if your cycles, if your menstrual cycles vary from, you know, time to time, yeah, like all bets are off. I can't tell you. So you could be bleeding and you could still have ovulated during that time. So everyone listening, you can get pregnant during your period. So make sure to be either using some form of contraception, whichever one you've decided on, because it is not a baby-free zone, period sex. Okay, speaking of that, someone asked, can you give an overview of uh, 
some of the different methods um, and options for contraception, just like a contraception 101, because actually there's a ton of misinformation demonizing contraception on social media now from like these natural, holistic kind of groups. And super demonizing it. Um, and there's so many options now that I thought this would be helpful for you to kind of debunk and just kind of explain what people have options for, because they don't have to be on just the pill. They could be on various things. Yeah. So there's like so many different options for birth control. So I always like to start with, you know, most people talk about the pill first, right? Because that's what most of us hear about first. And there's different types of pills, right? So, I mean, there's like, obviously like the marketing, like different types, like we're extra low dose birth control, whatever, but like actually in types of pills, there are progesterone only pills. And then there's estrogen and progesterone combined pills, progestin only pills. Those pills are not as effective as the combination ones because it requires you to be more regular in terms of taking it. Like you have to really take it within an hour every, like every day at the same time because of the way that the progestin works. And basically what these pills do is they override your body. They like, so your menstrual cycle, it's also a hormone cycle. You have peaks and valleys of estrogen and progesterone, right? During your menstrual cycle. And that's what causes ovulation. And so when you're on any of these pills, it kind of flattens that out. So you don't have those peaks and valleys and and essentially you don't ovulate. So it it impedes ovulation. There's other ways that it works too. Thickens the cervical mucus, things like that. But honestly, the main way is that it impedes ovulation, right? And so when people are like, oh my God, it's going to make you infertile forever. Once you stop taking that pill, your body takes over. And what people should understand is like a lot of times people get started on birth control for not just contraceptive uses, but for let's say painful periods or irregular bleeding and things like that. And if they start when they're young, like a teenager, and then don't plan on getting pregnant until they're 30, that could be potentially like 15 years that they're on that contraception. And they may have forgotten how bad their periods were or that they had irregular periods or, you know, maybe during that time in the background of all of this, you develop PCOS, right? So it's not the pill that did any of this stuff. This was just what your body was doing that the pill like didn't allow you to see. And so once you take that off, it's like, you know, it's like when we take the makeup off at night, like you get you get what you get, right? Like <laughs> that, that's, that's what the universe gave us, you know what I mean? And, then yeah. you, have to, and you deal with it then. But like, I, I think that tends to be something that people don't realize is that if you start your start contraception, most people do like either in like in your teenage years or early 20s, your body still probably hasn't even figured itself out yet. And so you don't even know that you have PCOS or endometriosis or anything that can, you know, affect your fertility or affect totally. your cycles or things like that. So that's that. And there's also the Depo-Provera shot which is a shot you can get every three months that has progestins only as well. And it kind of gives you a steady state of that. It is the only form of contraception that actually has been shown to have a statistically significant amount of weight gain out of all of them. And in the literature is anywhere, and there's different studies, it's anywhere from three to eight pounds, but that might not, you may not fall within that. You may 
not gain anything. You may gain much more than that, but that was what was seen in the studies that were done for it. Um, also, too, it can increase. It, we try to avoid it sometimes in people who have histories of like depression because sometimes it can increase depressive symptoms. But also, a positive for it is that it's something you don't have to take every day. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have lighter periods or no periods at all. And so, and the people who really like Depo really like Depo. Yeah, also, it can, you can see issues with bone density, but once you come off of it, that reverses itself. So I always tell people to take like calcium and vitamin D while they're on that. So that's an option. Oh, and the other things that you can take, the ring, the patch, all of those things, the vaginal ring goes in the vagina. It doesn't go into the uterus like an intrauterine device or an IUD. A lot of people get those mixed up. The ring stays in for three weeks and you can take it out um, and, and get like, a withdrawal bleed, which is like a fake period, basically. Like, so it's not a period because you ovulated. It's a period because we took away those hormones and then your uterine lining sheds. Um, there's also, and yeah, the patches every, it, it, you change it every week. There's the next one on, which is a handy dandy implant that goes into your upper arm. It lasts for so FDA approved for three years, evidence supports up to five years. Um, yeah, which a great option. Yeah, a lot of people don't even realize that part, but there's actually been a decent amount of studies. Most of them are in Europe that have shown efficacy up to five years. And a lot of people may see like some weird spotting in the beginning, but ultimately that usually fades away and then people end up with either like very, very light periods or no periods at all. and it tends to be really popular. I don't know. I felt like it was really popular in like kind of the teenage crowd because like a lot of times teens are like, I don't really want to take a pill every day. I'm going to forget. And then they don't like needles. <laughs> and so they want a shot every three months. And then um, the IUDs like seems to a lot of them very invasive. And right, so right. I've found a lot of teenage teenagers like it and then once you take the next one on out you can get pregnant again so it, it can take up to a few months to regain a regular like menstrual cycle after that and then you have your IUDs so there's now like a ton on the market and so I'll go with tried and true there's like the ones like Skyla that are three years and like I think um, like FDA approved for three years and then it can be up to five in like what we've seen in studies. The Mirena, which is now FDA approved for six years, it used to be five and we've seen it up to seven years in, in research. And then the Paragard is 10 years FDA approved, but up to 12 in Wow. research because I think it's really important to talk about that kind of stuff because I've had yeah. people like especially during the pandemic and like the heights of like you know COVID and everything and like our outpatients a lot of outpatient stuff was shut down they were like yeah. in almost in tears they're like I have to get this IUD out of me it's like 10 years to the day I can't have it in a day longer or I'm gonna get pregnant I need a new one and then I have to be like hey like yes you can definitely get it changed out, no problem. But the data shows that it's very effective even for a few years after. And so like, you don't have to be there the day that it's due to come out to like get it out. Like, you know, you can wait a few weeks or months or whatever, depending on what's going on in your life. So I like to tell people that. But the IUDs, they go into your uterus, they have a little string that hangs out of the cervix. 
Very, very effective. They're actually more effective than a tubal ligation while you have it in wow. place. It's by a few decimal places out, but it still <laughs> is a true story. <laughs> so it is. Paragard has no hormones at all. It's copper. And then the other ones have progestins in them. The progestin ones tend to either lighten your periods or take them away completely. The Paragard. Some people might notice a little bit heavier periods. Some people might notice some cramping, things like that with periods that they may not have had before. But overall, they're pretty well tolerated. People actually really like them. And fun fact, they're gynecologists for themselves. The most popular birth control that gynecologists like to have for their wow. for themselves. I have I I've always used IUDs, and I think that they are just. I, besides, I might have mentioned that I vasovagal when I had <laughs> my first IUD, but but still, despite that, I still think they're the best too. I think they're probably the most by I I'm just guessing, but physicians across the board because I think they're. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Yeah, a lot of so physicians really like them. Yeah, a lot of physicians <laughs> yeah. like them. And then I always like to say, I'm like, gynecologists, we put it in ourselves. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the important point here for anyone listening is that, that first of all, that was an amazing 101. Thank you so much for that. I think for anyone listening, that there's like a plethora of options for you for for contraception. So you know, you don't have to feel like you try one birth control pill and, you know, you, you you don't feel right on it or it doesn't vibe well with you, that that's your only option, that there's tons of options. There's yes. so many options. It's just getting in with your OBGYN and having this conversation. And you can have this conversation multiple times until yeah. you, you know, make the decision that's right for you. Exactly. So definitely, if you're interested in that stuff, definitely come talk to one of us and try something out and see if it works for you. And if not, there's plenty of other things you can try. <laughs> <laughs> well, one last question from one of my listeners. She said, this is a really good one, actually. Um, she says she's 34, sexually active, and she never got the HPV vaccine. And she wants to know if it's too late because she was told she was supposed to get it before she turned 26. It is not too late. Fiction. That is false, guys. That is, it is it not is too false. late. So now the HPV vaccine is FDA approved to 44. Amazing. And I mean, they're, this is all still like a moving target too, because people are doing studies, you know, kind of out into later years because we're trying to see how effective it can be. But yes, if you're 34 and you're sexually active, even if you had abnormal pap smears before, even if you had colposcopies before, even if you had a leap or a cold knife cone, so meaning like you had pretty bad cervical dysplasia, you can still get the HPV vaccine. Why? Because it can protect you from other strains of HPV. So important. That you may not have gotten. So if you are you know under the age of 44 go right on in go get where it. did the 26 thing come from i it feel used like to be. I, oh it, it used, used to be. be i'm so glad they expanded it they expanded it and that went into effect i want to say about five like not five years ago that was like more like three years ago but i think i'm now more let the fda put that out but you know insurance companies are always like a little bit late to yep. the party so i think most insurance companies now if not all cover it to up to 44 
That is fantastic. And can you just give everyone as our last thing, kind of a bit of a rundown on the HPV vaccine, who else should get it and why, why everyone yeah, should get it? So basically like everyone should get it. <laughs> male, female. Yeah, male, female, that's what I'm saying. Like everyone should get it. And I think the youngest you can be is nine or something like that. I can't remember, but I believe it's nine. And it's because there are a few cancers that it prevents, right? So the HPV vaccine is primarily to guard against cervical cancer, but it also um, protects against pharyngeal cancer, oral cancers, anal cancers. So it really, really protects tons of people from that. And it's three shots. I know. Oh my God. Awful. But (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like those cancers are not fun, like at all. And like, you know, if you see somebody who like, especially with like oral or pharyngeal cancer, it's like very disfiguring and very painful. And same with cervical cancer too. It's like, and also it guards against vulvar cancer, vaginal cancer. Those are way more rare, but can help. And, you know, yeah. these are things that are like these vaccines are very effective and will help you out a lot. So I definitely think you should get it. (laughs) Super important. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Heather. You are the best. And everyone who's listening, feel free to find Dr. Heather on social media and send her your tampon questions. She has no judgment. You have a condom stuck in you. Tell Dr. Heather she wants to hear all about it. I do. (laughs) Tell everyone again, remind them where they can find you on all of your socials because I'm obsessed with your social and everyone should go follow her now. Yes, TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Heather Irvin, MD. I also have a podcast, which is Dr. Heather's Advisory Cervix. Like, yes, it's a pun. Uh, Funny. It's amazing. And it's it's funny and fun. And we talk about- so fun. Any and everything- reproductive sexual health there is no question no topic that is off limits no judgment zone and no judgment let me tell you as I keep saying I've been through a lot (laughs) I've seen a lot I've done a lot and you've seen it right you've done a lot too so that's why I'm like like, that's why like when people get all weird about like I don't know how to track my period yo I didn't know how to track my period until I went to medical school medical school and I was like oh my god this is like (laughs) mind-blowing no I know and so it's so great that you offer that space so go follow Dr. Heather go listen to her podcast and thank you so much for coming on today yes 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 thank you for having me thanks for listening to this week's episode I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.